John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Let me begin reading in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, this is a word that, that we elevate. We are not even worthy, Lord, to, to, to open it. This is your book. And yet you encourage us to look inside and discover you. Lord, I I pray that as we we look today that our hearts would be drawn to you. We would would, uh, become more like your son, Jesus Christ, as a result of looking in this word today. I pray that you would bless our time. Father, I pray that it would be clear. May my words be clear. May I not be a distraction. May we just simply hear from you today what you've already told us. We thank you. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John, in John chapter 2, is, um, he, he is pointing us to Christ. And that, that's just consistent with the theme. This is a gospel pointing to Christ for the purpose of belief. He's encouraging you to believe for the purpose of salvation. And he's pointing out in chapter 2 some very subtle characteristics of God himself. And um, he's pointing to Christ for the purpose of pointing out Christ's deity. And in doing so, he's actually revealing God to us. And the first part here, um, the first part of the chapter uh, from 1 to 12, basically was revolved around uh, the wedding at Canaan of Galilee. And there was a couple things that we, a few things that we learned in that particular situation. And that was the fact that, that God has God's perspective. You would expect that. You would think that. But sometimes we kind of forget that he's going to have God's perspective. So Christ, when we look at Christ's life, he is going to see things from God's perspective. He's also going to have God's authority. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And, and he was able to turn the water into wine. And he was able to have, or he had God's supernatural ability. He is God. In fact, that's kind of what we, kind of what we see. When we look at Christ, we see, we see God. Now, these men, I mean, Jesus had started his ministry, this earthly ministry. And these men were now following him. And they were observing his life as these things would unfold. And um, they were drawing certain conclusions. 
They were thinking. They were evaluating. Now, they had already committed their life to following this guy, but they're looking back and they're saying, oh, was this a good idea? Was this man who he claims to be? Was, uh, did I make a wise choice here? When those, when those disciples then discovered, though, Christ, when they began to see these little subtle things in his life, it only affirmed their faith. It said to them, yes, uh, yes, and it confirmed the decision that they had made. Yes, we made the right decision. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And it reinforced the decision that they had made. They were, their faith served to, uh, or, or these things served to strengthen their faith. Now, we may compare this to what uh, marketers in the business world might call post-purchase behavior. The other day, actually it wasn't the other day, it was probably a couple of years ago, maybe last Christmas, at some point in the past, I went into a store and I bought a, um, I bought a coffee maker for my wife. It's just something that we needed, maybe as a Christmas present. And I looked at all of the different coffee makers. And I'm telling you, it's a complex thing, this coffee maker. Making coffee, it's not just a coffee maker anymore. I mean, it, it does everything. And um, so you're looking at this, this, this product, and my, my daughter, I believe my daughter was, uh, was helping me, and we were looking at all of these things. And we settled on one, and we, we picked it out and, and paid for it and took it home. And it was great, and it's actually been a very good coffee maker. Post-purchase behavior, though, after the fact, after I had already committed to purchasing this coffee maker, what do I do? I go to other stores. And I look at other coffee makers and I say, hmm, this coffee maker does this. That coffee maker does, or this one is the exact same model, but $20 less post-purchase behavior. Now what we do when we do this, and they tell you don't look back, don't second guess yourself, but over time you'll know, won't you? You'll know if you made a wise decision or a bad decision on a coffee maker. And you might do the same thing with a car or with, you know, some people are still probably doing it with their marriage. But I'm not sure that you want to do that. There's no such thing as post-purchase behavior in marriage. I'm not promoting that. <laughs> what, what's happening here, though, is as these men get a glimpse of who Christ is, that He's really God. And when this deity shows forth, they say, yes, we made the right decision. He is who He claimed to be. And, and it affirms their faith. It affirms their faith. And that's a good thing. But now the second section here, John's doing the same thing. He's pointing out Christ and His deity. And... Um, uh, the, the location here has changed, though. It's now in Jerusalem. It's around the temple. And it's around the time of the Passover. And remember last week, Jesus gone in uh, and he saw the business that was taking place in the place of worship. And he threw those people out. This is a place of worship, not a place of business. And we learned that Christ... Uh, something about God there was that, that uh, God's values uh, reflect His holiness. 
And so Christ, he's going to have God's values and he's going to reflect his holiness. And when he goes in and sees the temple like that, he cannot stay in, cannot stay in that situation. So he's got to do something about it. And so he does. And we learn... We learn something about that. And the, the, the faith of the disciples are, uh, is, is reaffirmed in verse 17. His disciples remember that it was said, zeal for your house. And they pointed back, yes, he is the Messiah. The Old Testament confirmed that. And their faith was just strengthened. It was affirmed. The decision that they made was, was confirmed, yes. Now, it's, it's very interesting because John keeps saying... They believed. They saw this and they believed. They heard this and they believed. Well, it's not like they're getting saved all over again. He's just referring to their their faith. It was strengthened again. Yes, yes, it was confirmed. When you make that purchase, it's either confirmed or it's it's, you're sad about the position, the, the coffee maker that you bought. But again, let me point out, here's what we're doing. We're investigating Christ. John is pointing to Christ. And when we look at Christ, it really becomes a theology lesson. We learn what God is like. That's what's going on here. And we learned that Christ accurately portrays God. And we come to the conclusion that Christ is God. They are one. And that's exactly what John wants you to conclude. So the point is, when we look at Christ, we see who? We see God. And the question that we're still answering this week is, what are some characteristics of God that are seen in Christ? Now, let's look at verse 18. Verse 18. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now remember, Jesus had gone in, he cleansed the temple, he threw those men out, and they want to know. By what authority are you doing this? Verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken to them. Now let's go back. The Jews there he's referring to, and and John does this really throughout his book. He just says the Jews, but he's referring to the Jewish leaders. It wasn't all the Jews, every Jew there. No, it was the Jewish leaders. And um, this would have been made up of probably some of the scribes, uh, probably a group of the Pharisees, and there was also the Sadducees. The scribes were in charge of the temple. And um, they, they uh, had the guards on their side. And so, of course, they're going to be ones that are questioning, why are you doing this? Why are you disrupting our temple uh, worship and what goes on here? Um, and then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were well-liked. They were kind of the ruling body of, uh, of the Jews at that time, the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders of their day. And then nothing much is said here about the the Pharisees, but they would probably had a stake in what was going on as well. The Pharisees being very purists, they they held to, I'm sorry, the Sadducees, uh, purists, and they held to the first five books of the Bible only. And um, so that was their 
that was their belief. And so you have these, these ruling bodies, they coming together maybe at this point and they question, what authority do you have to do this? And they ask for a sign. Um, now notice that, uh, they don't arrest Jesus. He's actually attacking, attacking, kind of poking, uh, their religion, their religious system by attacking the, the temple, uh, the people in the temple and throwing them out. And it was a, somewhat of a, an attack there. And, but notice they didn't arrest him. They come and just ask, well, what authority do you do this? Now they're looking for a sign. And then rightfully so. It, sign proves that they were from God. If this man can do a sign, then he is in his rightful place. And he has the right authority to do this. And this man really was from God. Now, unfortunately, they're looking for a sign, but you know what's happening there. They don't care about a sign. In fact, Jesus gives them many signs. And um, you know what? They reject those signs. And ultimately, they're going to kill him. So a sign is not what they want. But that's what they ask for, a sign. And, and so he gives them, he says, okay, I'll give you a sign. And, and he points to his resurrection. The only sign is going to be, I'm going to, I'll point to my resurrection. And um, they completely missed the point, of course. Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, it says. Now, now this is kind of, I believe this is kind of a vague uh, challenge that Jesus offers them. It's kind of veiled. It's purposely designed to be misunderstood. But he's uh, still giving them a sign. He's pointing to his resurrection. And his resurrection is the basis upon, uh, of, the, uh, of his authority. He, has, he can conquer death. And his resurrection proves that fact. And that's the authority really that they're looking for. But in doing so, Jesus, Jesus offers, he offers them a, a challenge. Now, this is just amazing to me. He's really kind of planting the seed in their mind. You kill me. You kill me and see what happens. Wow. That you can't get any better authority than that. You're going to raise from the dead. And he points to his, his own. And, and he's actually predicting the future there. Here's what's going to happen. And, uh, What we see, though, is not just simple prediction of the future, point number one there. We see that he is in complete control of the future, don't we? And that's God. God doesn't simply just know the future. Well, here's what Carl's going to do next. Or here's what he's going to say next. Or he's going to buy that goofy coffee maker. No, he doesn't just know the future. God is in control of every step of the way. And that's, that's what we see. God is in control of the future. And, and God, from his perspective, has a different thing that's going on here. Now, let me, uh, let me go back on the slides here. If we could go to the, uh, to the slide, you'll see, there we go, uh, what we saw, the first three, you see God's, uh, has his own timetable and authority, and, uh, that would be, the first one would be his perspective and authority and his ability. That goes back to the first part of the chapter. And then last week we saw, uh, number four there, the next slide. 
we see God's values reflect God's His holiness. And Christ saw that. And then number five is where we are. So if you're looking, if you're looking on the sheet or if you're looking on the thing, there we go. Now we're caught up. God is in control of the future. He doesn't just predict the future, but He's in control of that future. He knows what's going on and He is in charge every step of the way. In fact, it's going just the direction that He wants it to go. From Christ, the the first uh, of His ministry, He had the end in mind, the goal in mind. And here's that end. Here's what one commentary said. His death as the ultimate sacrificial lamb was to render the Jerusalem temple, temple obsolete. With his death, that that final sacrifice will happen and the the temple there would be no need for anymore. In fact, it's it's, uh, completely off the scene uh, about 70 A.D. He goes on to say in his his resurrection as triumphant Lord lays a, a foundation of a new temple, namely the church. God has God has. Massive things going on here. And it's in God's timetable. It's from God's perspective. And He is in charge every step of the way. In Christ, He is in complete control of that. And He's planting this little seed. You kill me and see what happens. And it's a challenge to them. Right at the beginning of His ministry. But He's in control of His life. He's in control of His death. And His death uh, was... He laying down his life. Now, it says in verse 22, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that it was said. They didn't get it at first. They, they, didn't, they didn't catch it. You ever been in the heat of the moment and everything's happening and things, words were exchanged and, man, they just didn't get it. In fact, they didn't get it and even asked until after his death. And then what happens? His disciples remember that it was said. And what did they do? They believed. Their faith was assured. Yes. You remember back? Yeah, I remember that. Why didn't we see that before? I don't know. Hindsight. It's 2020. Remember we talked about that last week. But their faith was... Now, here's what, here's what I want you to see. Those with genuine faith, and they had genuine faith... When they discover God, when, when God is, is, uh, is seen in some subtle way, it just simply affirms their faith. It affirms their faith. They say, yes, yes, we're on the right track. Yes, we see it. Yes, thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself in that way. We believe. Yes. Do you see that? Do you get it? How do we apply this? How do we apply this? Christ was in complete control of his life. Can you do that? I can't do that. And I don't believe you can either. You're not complete control. I mean, we try to be as much as we can, be in control of our life. But quite frankly, we're in better hands if we place our lives in God's hands. And that would be the application. Christ is in charge of his life here. We should place our lives in charge are in Christ's hands and let Him be in charge of our lives. By way of application, that's just what we need to do. You say, well, how does that work? What does that look like? What do we do? Well, when you, when you get a new job, what do you do? You take on new responsibilities. When you, um, 
a job now, a job is kind of being redefined for us today. It's something that somebody just gives you so you can get money. It's not that. You are taking on responsibilities. You're responsible to do this and this and this, and you have that responsibility. It's not just, well, I sit in this office and I sit there and, and eventually they'll, get, they'll pay me. It's not that at all. Well, we take on responsibilities. When you become a Christian, when you put your life in Christ's hands, He gives you responsibilities. Now, I want you to see this. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You receive responsibilities. Here's what God wants you to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, this is just kind of a grocery list that Paul just kind of lays out there. But it's just responsibilities. And in taking those responsibilities, you are putting him in charge of your life. You're just saying, yes, I'm going to do what you say me that I'll do. That you want me to do. Look at verse 15. There's, there's plenty more in this. But um, see that no one repays uh, another with evil uh, with evil for evil, but always seeking after that which is good for one another. And he goes on to say, rejoice always. That's a responsibility he places on your, your shoulders. As a believer, when you become a Christian, when you, when you place your life into his hands, he says, I want you to rejoice always. That's your responsibility now. What about when things aren't going so well? You rejoice always. Look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Here's another responsibility. You you keep in constant tune with God and you pray through your day. Pray without ceasing. Look at verse 18. And this is, we'll summarize the point. In everything, give thanks. So God is placing upon you the responsibility, it is your responsibility to be thankful and to give thanks. It's your responsibility. How do, I, how do you know that? Well, it sounds a little legalistic, Carl. Well, look at this. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ. It's God's will. God is placing that responsibility upon you. This is your job description, and He wants you to... Rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. At least those three. There's plenty more. But those are responsibilities. And, and what happens? You begin to lose your life and you just live Christ's life. You take on that responsibility. And that's what it looks like. So simply applying this, we just place our um, life in Christ's hands and He will control everything. He knows the future. And he'll control the future. He'll get us to where we need to be. Let me go on to the next one. We're looking at Christ. We're discovering God. And here's another characteristic of God. Christ not only reflected God's glory or God's uh, holiness and values uh, of holiness, but he controls the future. And, verse 23, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast... Or many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew man's heart. Here's the principle. God knows the heart of man. He knows your heart. He knows the heart of man. 
This was this would have been the feast of the unleavened bread. This would have been right after the Passover. They would have stayed in Jerusalem for probably another week at least, and uh, a time of uh, fellowship and. And so there would be people around, and, and Jesus was doing some miracles. Jesus was starting his ministry, and he was getting attention, and he was doing miracles. And in fact, it says many believed in him. It's a lot of people that, that believe. But notice something about this belief. There's some indications here that it's kind of superficial. It's a superficial belief. They may have known that, or maybe, maybe they thought, well, well, this is, this guy's obviously from God. Maybe he's a, a prophet. Or if he is the Messiah, maybe he's just, uh, uh, the conquering Messiah, and, and eventually he's gonna conquer Rome and, and take over. But it says many believed. But look at verse, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. Many believed in his name. And maybe that's as far as it goes, in his name, observing what? Observing his signs, which he was, which he was doing. They liked the signs. Man, do some more. What was their fixation? On the signs. You remember the illustration? You come into West Virginia, wild, wonderful West Virginia, you see the sign. The fixation can be on the sign sometimes, and it's not to be on the sign. It, the sign just points. But they were fixated on the sign. And their belief was a shallow belief. It was a superficial belief. There's a disingenuous faith, you might say. In fact, here's, it's kind of a play on words. He says, many believed. And then in verse 24, it says, on Jesus' part, he was not entrusting himself to them. It's the same root word from the same family. Jesus, essentially, Jesus was, had no faith in their faith. He had no faith in there. He didn't, he didn't trust himself to them. He didn't commit to them because they weren't really believing. They loved the sign. They loved the sign. He didn't trust their profession. It's amazing. <clears throat> you can get crowds to do about anything you want to. You get a group of people together. Man, you get the emotions flowing. Wow, look at this miracle. Look at this trick. And man, you can get people to commit to anything, profess to anything. But you know what? Unlike the disciples, they hadn't really dealt with their sinfulness, had they? They hadn't necessarily uh, really even know who this man was. Obviously, he was from God or, you know, he was... But that's about as far as it went. Their belief was somewhat shallow. And James, James reminds us that even the demons believe. There's a There's a... Uh, superficial faith there. And remember, uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 13 when he talks about the sower, the parable of the sower. The sower goes out and he plants the seed. Some falls on rocky soil. Some falls on thorny soil. And what happens? They spring up. There's a, there's a, a quick attachment there. And, and boy, it looks like it's going to be great, but because the root system is not good, because it's shallow soil, or maybe because the thorns and the, the weeds choke it out, that faith just dies. It just kind of goes away as, as a superficial faith over time. That's important. It's an important concept. The problem with man is man's heart. It's the soil. There's a problem there. Not every belief is genuine belief. And John is wanting us to understand that. 
And he's, he's setting us up for chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16. He's going to talk about belief and what it really means to believe. But here's a picture of superficial belief. And he wants us to understand that. Uh, genuine belief and superficial belief have two completely different ends, don't they? And he wants us to, to get it. He wants us to, to understand it. James said, living faith and dead faith have two different ends. And it's John's desire that we understand this. Genuine saving faith, you know what? It demands a whole life commitment, doesn't it? These people, they, want, they like to see the signs, but man, as far as committing themselves to being this guy's disciple, I don't know. As long as he can produce these signs, I'll keep coming to his concerts. I'll keep coming to his, uh, his little tricks, his magic shows. I mean, that's pretty entertaining. Paul points out that not all Israel was Israel. And that's kind of a strange way to put it. But not all of Israel really believed. I want you to see a picture of this. Turn over to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. This is just a, a great illustration of this. And you need to get this fixed in your mind. Numbers chapter 14, verse 20. So the Lord said, Numbers chapter 14, So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all men have, have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt. Notice that. All men, they saw it. They saw my signs. They saw my glory. In, in, in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test. And these ten times, these ten men, and uh, have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me shall see it. But, look at this, but my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit, and was following me fully. He followed God fully. There's a few things there. He, he had listened intently to God's word. He had uh, um, uh, listened to God's voice. He saw the same signs that everyone else do. But you know what? He followed the Lord fully. Completely. No reservations. That's, that's important. It's important for us to understand that we cannot have, we must not have, or there's a danger of having a superficial belief. Those, uh, there were those who followed Jesus that had a dead, empty, human faith. But they were following Jesus outside. They, there were many people that were following him and it was surface um, they liked the miracles. They were seeing what was going on, but, but they didn't commit themselves to being disciples of Christ. God knows more than just man's actions. He hears more than man's simple words. He knows the heart of man. Christ was not entrusting himself to them. How do we know? How do you know if you have genuine faith? How do you know? Well, turn over to John chapter 
John chapter 8, verse 31. We'll come to this passage eventually. But John chapter 8, verse 31. John actually is spending a lot of his time in his gospel with these two major themes of belief and unbelief or superficial belief. He spends a lot of time on, on this. And Jesus clearly points it out in chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. They, they had, they had, there was a certain measure of belief. There's a profession. There's an attachment. An attachment to what was going on. And he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. There's a continuing there. In fact, other places he said there's an, an obedience as well. You continue in his word. There's an obedience and a remaining. Those are two important elements to this. Continuing and remaining. Now, how do we apply this? Well, I know that a church this size, and in fact any religion, there's going to be people that attach themselves to this church, this body. And they're going to have a superficial belief. And the thing is, is, I can't know your heart. We can't know each other's heart. God can, but we can't. We can fool a whole lot of people, but you can't fool God. He knows your actions, your words, and your heart. People attach themselves to religions for social reasons, for you know, to bring up their kids to instill values into their children, um, just for the fun and fellowship of it sometimes. But I tell you, if you miss the genuine belief, you're going to spend eternity in hell, not eternal life. And so Paul encourages us to examine our own life, to know whether we're in the faith. And how do you do that? Well, do you have a love for God? Do you have a love for God's Word? Do you have a love for God's people? Those are some signs. And you say, well, that's a little subjective. How can I know if I love people enough? How can I know if I love God's Word enough? Yeah, it's a little subjective. A little subjective. Even Paul said, you know what? I don't even evaluate myself. God has to evaluate me. But here's, here's what I don't want. I don't want our church filled with people who are in that doubt stage. And they don't know where they, they land. They don't know well, if I have superficial belief or real belief. That's exactly where Satan would love for you to be. Because why? You're ineffective uh, in the work of God. And so we don't want to be in that. We need to know. We need to have assurance. And John, he wrote uh, an epistle just addressing this thing so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to, to know these things. And it comes down to this. What do you do with God's Word? Do you obey God's Word? And are you continuing in God's Word? That's really what it comes down to. Now, I'm putting this out to you very frankly and very uh, boldly because it has eternal consequences. We must examine ourselves. What do we examine? What do I do? do? Am I obedient? Am I obedient? Do I do what the Bible says? Do I do what God's Word says? It's real simple. Uh, 
You can see the signs. You can have the fellowship. You can have the fun. But are you obedient? Do you live consistently under the obedience of God's word? Do you remain? Well, those things are important. You know, by the end, Jesus' three and a half year ministry, he, if, you, if you just take a snapshot right now at his ministry, the early part of his ministry, you say, wow, many people believed. And, and this is great. He's gotten off to a good start. By the end of his ministry, give him three and a half years, he's going to have a whole lot of people, right? How many did he have after his death and resurrection? 120? Shaky people? <laughs> 120. Where did they go? They did not obey. They did not remain, did they? So here's how I see this. Here's how I see this kind of going. It's kind of like the 10 spies or the 12 spies that go in and they see all of these things and they come to completely different conclusions. There are people that saw Christ's ministry And they came to completely different conclusions. Oh, they like the signs. They respond to the signs. But instead of those signs affirming their faith, this genuine faith, it it didn't. They saw the negative. Some way they saw the point. They came to the point and said, you know what? This isn't worth it. I'm going to walk away. Or maybe it was the cares of life just came and just choked out any truth that might have been there. Satan might have come and snatched away the the uh, the seed, the truth. Sometimes riches, frankly, according to the Bible, sometimes riches just choke that out. But it comes down to obedience and remaining. Obedience and remaining. And just by way of application, applying this particular principle, how how do we respond? How do we respond when we get a glimpse of God? Does it affirm your faith? Or do you come in and you you see, yeah, I knew I would see hypocrites in that church. I knew I would uh, I would not like it. I knew that there wouldn't be genuine. I knew that and you begin on this negative downward spiral of just affirming what you already believed in your heart. That, you know what, this is nothing worth having. This is, this is not worth keeping. I can walk away at any time. Or do you respond with genuine belief? And do you respond when you get a glimpse, when you read these stories about Christ, you say, yes, that's my, that's my um, Redeemer. That's the one I put my faith and trust in. And you know what? I see it. I get it. It may be a little bit after the fact. and We may have to remember these things and John's bringing these things to our attention. But how do you respond to that? How do you respond? Does it encourage you? Does it build up your faith? Or do you find, and there will be, there will be enough negative stuff to focus on and it, and it can cause you just to, just to walk away, just completely walk away. But whatever you do, it's going to reflect that decision you made. It's going to say, yeah, you know what? I have genuine faith and I'm going to stick to it. Or, no, you know what? That faith is pretty superficial anyway and I can walk away. That's kind of what it says. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I, 
Thank you for your word. And Lord, the challenge that it is to our life. Father, there are those who believed. There are those who saw the miracles. Those who, who actually were there. And Lord, they, they walked away. They, they, didn't, they didn't fully believe. They hadn't committed. They hadn't dealt with their sins. They, they hadn't really entrusted themselves to you. Help us not to be like that, Lord. Father, we know that you have to grab us. That you have to hang on to us. And so we are just fully, completely dependent upon you. Lord, never, never let us just walk away. May our faith, when it is tried, be found to be proof and evidence of genuine salvation. A genuine changed life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.